Welcome back to part six, episode number 196, and our final episode of this series where we'll cover the final chapters and we'll add the neuroscience behind the timeless goal-setting principles in Napoleon Hill's classic book, Think and Grow Rich, to ensure we make 2022 our best year ever with brain science in mind. This episode I'm dedicating to the man who's been reading this book for his entire life, who I've mentioned often in this series and podcast, Bob Proctor, who was the first person to see more in me than I could see in myself. It was Bob who asked me, what do you really want, when I was in my late 20s and just figuring it all out. He did catch me off guard with this question, but it didn't take long to map out the vision, as crazy as it seemed at the time, when you have someone who believes in you to push you along the way, the vision becomes clear. Once you know what you want and have a crystal clear vision of it, it really is our duty to make it happen in our lifetime. Bob is the perfect example of someone who took action, inspiring millions globally, and someone I'll be forever grateful that I crossed paths with. I found out that Bob was gravely ill while finishing this episode and thought it was important to recognize his influence as an example for all of us to put something into our goals this year that we've never done. Using Bob's example, do something wildly different this year than we have ever previously. He said many things that are forever stuck in my head, but I found a quote that makes sense to close out our book study that I think will stick with all of us. He said, you can't just think and grow rich. You've got to do something with those thoughts. I'm hoping that this year we're all looking for quantum leap results that take us far beyond where we've ever been before. I've been studying success principles and how successful people became that way since the late 90s when my paths crossed with Proctor. I saw these ideas could transform results for our students in the classroom years before we talked about how important our mindset was after Carol Dweck's work made an impact in the field of education and I wrote my first book, The Secret for Teens Revealed, to document these success principles that are echoed throughout Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich book and aren't difficult to understand, but implementing them in our daily life is where the hard work comes in. So here's my challenge to you, to go through each of the parts in this series and see what you can do to truly make a difference and impact with whatever it is you're doing this year. We've covered the 15 principles used by some of the wisest people in the world, and I want to add a sense of urgency for all of us to kick it into high gear this year. Think and act in a wildly different way than we have previously. This will take some focus, but the results will be well worth the effort. Remember that Hill says you haven't read this book until you've read it three times? We can come back to this series next year and continue to apply the principles with the new experiences built over the entire year. This series is not only for you, the listener, I'm doing the work right along with you.
If you want to see my interview with Bob Proctor and where my vision began, go back to episodes 66 and 67 on the top lessons learned working with him for six years, which is one of our most downloaded episodes and one I still receive feedback and messages about. With this episode today, I knew I had to tie in the most current brain research so we can look at ways to improve our current goal-setting achieving process with strategies that will take the guesswork out of our year to make a difference for all of us, since the strategies I will share are all peer-reviewed and have been proven scientifically to be the most effective way to achieve whatever it is we're working on this year. When I say I want us to make this our best year ever, I really do mean it. And I wouldn't spend the time to create this episode if I didn't think this could make a difference for all of us. There is a neuroscience to setting and achieving goals for habit formation and habit breaking. And I hope this episode will help break down the science and make these principles applicable in your daily life for the results that will inevitably come. Remember, it's our duty to take action and use the potential that we each have This is not just a mere wish or hope. It's for all of us to take action on whatever it is we want, our burning desire, in a way we've never done in past years. What will we do differently this year? We've covered an introduction to how our brain forms and breaks habits on an earlier episode, number 35, way back to January of 2020, That's a good episode to review in addition to what I'll share with you here today. If you've made it this far in our six-part series, I've got to congratulate you, as most people don't ever finish this book, let alone read it three times like Hill suggests. I can tell that each time I've read this book, I stopped at chapter 12, The Subconscious Mind, probably because we covered this concept thoroughly when I worked with Proctor, that I missed reading chapter 13 on the brain and chapter 14 on the sixth sense and 15 on how to outwit the six ghosts of fear that I'll highlight at the end of this episode. I can tell that I didn't read these chapters as there's no notes written on these pages. And then the addition that I have, when I got to the end of the book, there was a surprise. There was a chapter 16 that I didn't even know existed. If you'll recall, there were only 15 principles we were going to cover. So when I saw the 16th chapter, I was confused and immediately sent a message to my good friend, Alan Lindemann from Ohio, who's taught this book for years, and I knew he'd reply immediately, which he did. Alan filled me in and reminded me that Napoleon Hill wrote another book shortly after Think and Grow Rich was published, but his wife wouldn't let him publish it at the time. It depends on the version of the book that you have, but mine has this 16th chapter that Alan thinks was included in the newer editions. I won't review it because I'm superstitious with what I think and talk about and prefer to stick to positive angles, steering clear of dark thoughts or perspectives, even if I know it's important to be aware of them. I would just prefer to keep this work focused in the light and would never speak or think of anything outside of positive thoughts for anyone. And this self-awareness will keep me from covering this final chapter. If you want to know what it's about, just Google chapter 16 of Think and Grow Rich and you'll see for yourself if you're curious. Just remember the power of auto-suggestion and that your non-conscious mind will take in whatever you offer it. 
So I highly recommend skipping it and focusing on the 15 principles we've covered. There is a power of thought, and if Hill didn't think it was important to guard our thoughts, I don't think he would have covered this in the first chapter. For this episode, I want to review each of the five parts that we covered in this series and see how the most current brain research ties into the timeless principles Hill wrote about to give us more belief as we push forward with whatever it is we're working on this year, which was the goal of covering this book to launch our year in the first place. I'll add the final two chapters at the end to complete our book study before our final review to bring these principles all together. Remember that part one began with a reminder from Grant Cardone that in order to get to the next level of whatever it is we're doing, we must think and act in a wildly different way than we previously have been. We've talked about Price Pritchett's U Squared book around this time last year on the podcast, where he explains that if you want to accelerate your results rapidly, you must search out and vigorously employ new behaviors. That's what I'm hoping this book study has inspired us to all do. What will we do differently this year? I'm hoping some of the strategies I share will inspire us to all take new actions that will yield new results and that we continue to look at everything we're doing with our brain in mind. So how do we use neuroscience to learn something new? Have you ever wondered what happens at the brain level when we're taking on new behaviors like Pritchett recommends or thinking in a wildly different way than we ever have been? Or when we're learning something new? Maybe you'll say, no, Andrea, I've never wondered this. And I'll say, that's okay. But just for a second, think in a wildly different way than you ever have previously. From how we've been taught learning occurs, the old method where we sit in class and I teach you something from the front of the classroom. And maybe you'll learn it by actually doing it when you take what I've taught and you apply it. Instead of this old way of learning, I want us to think inside of the skull of our brain, to our neural networks as we're learning something new, or if you're teaching students in the classroom or coaching a sport, and see if this understanding can help you to see how new information is acquired at the brain level first, before giving us the new results we want to achieve. Just think differently. Look at the image in the show notes and let's take a trip inside our skulls. When learning something new in the classroom, at home, or a new sport, neurons in the brain begin to slowly extend an axon out to other axons, connecting to other neurons, which is a slow process. We have oligodendrocytes that are green in the image that wrap myelin around the axon to allow information to move faster. We have astrocytes that are shaped like stars and red in the image that play an active role in memory and learning as they wrap around the blood vessel, serving as gatekeepers at the blood-brain barrier, providing homeostasis and regulating blood flow in the brain. For learning to occur, Eva Kint, an associate professor at the University of Antwerp in Belgium, shares that we must have motivation and willingness to learn as the basic elements. And one way to motivate the brain is to expose it to something new and unfamiliar. The ability to learn new things, whether that's calculus or hitting a fastball, requires stretching our brain past the point of what's familiar or comfortable. And that stretch requires unbroken concentration. 
Think of all the things happening in the brain and the focus required to make these connections happen. Cal Newport from Georgetown University says the amount of concentration a person requires to learn something new depends on the complexity of the material. The more complex something is, the more sustained focus a person will likely need to grasp it. And that there are habits of mind to facilitate learning, such as curiosity and diligence. As we're teaching or coaching new skills, think of the neural networks that are being created, the myelin that's formed each time a student reinforces the skill they're learning, and ways that you can inspire students to become curious with what they're learning. What's interesting to me is that the research shows there's nothing inspiring about doing something we know we can do. There's no motivation in that, and it requires us to use our imagination, chapter six from Think and Grow Rich, to push ourselves and those we're teaching to new limits. American neuroscientist and tenured professor at the Department of Neurobiology at Stanford School of Medicine, Dr. Andrew Huberman's research said that the data shows the probability of achieving the goal depends on whether the goal is easy, moderate, or impossible. If the goal is too easy or difficult, we won't use enough of our autonomic nervous system to recruit our action, and these goals won't lean you towards readiness. But when goals are moderate or something that everyone can see as possible, something happens to our blood pressure to prepare our body to take the action needed. Huberman says when goals are moderate or in range, there's a near doubling of the systolic pressure that helps the body to lean into the goal. Your body becomes primed for the action it's about to take. If we're looking to achieve quantum level results or achieve something we've never done before, I think it's direly important to make what we're going for to be achievable or something we can see ourselves doing for the leaning in to occur physiologically. That's why reading and writing our goals out twice a day and having a crystal clear vision of what we want, that burning desire that anyone can spot when you're talking about what you're working towards is so important. When we can connect what the research says to our goal achieving process, it makes more sense. So how do we put this into action and break past where we've never been before? Think about the sports team in last place who has a vision of winning and they had to stretch their mind beyond their past results. Like the Cincinnati Bengals who, according to NFL research, no team in NFL history had overcome a halftime deficit of 10 plus points to win in multiple games against an opponent in a single season, including playoffs. This team suffered year after year with their performance and haven't been a good team since they made the playoffs in 1988. Two years ago, they were the worst team in the NFL until they got a new head coach and quarterback and whatever they did changed the trajectory of the team. The quarterback had previously won the college national championship, so he brought the winning mindset to the team. Only they know what they did to achieve this milestone, and it will be interesting to see how it plays out moving forward, but I think it just takes one person of influence to turn a team around with a new mindset, encouraging new actions, and to think in a wildly different way than they ever had previously so they can get to where they've never been before.
This concept can be applied in the workplace if we want a new position at work and the salary is three times higher than our current salary. We must be able to see beyond what we know we can do using our imagination to break through where our results currently are sitting to achieve these quantum leap results. We must be unwavering with our vision for what we want. This is how history is made in the sports world and how we can transfer this skill to our personal and professional lives. In part two, we looked at the importance of positive thinking, being crystal clear with what we want, and I'm going to add something Price Pritchett warns us in his Youth Squared book, that most people confuse wishing and wanting with pursuing their goals, and that quantum leaps require you to take the offensive. You can't achieve exponential gains in your success from a defensive position. You can't make a passive stance and make a quantum jump and leave the safety that goes along with merely wishing for something. You must place your trust in action. So what is the neuroscience behind taking action with our goals? American neuroscientist from Stanford University School of Medicine, the well-respected Dr. Andrew Huberman, discusses the science of setting, assessing, and executing goals on his recent podcast. Dr. Huberman reminds us there's only one basic system in the brain related to goal setting, and there are common brain circuits that help move us towards our goals, short and long-term, and that humans can juggle many different types of goals, financial, health, or work-related, but usually when we put all our focus on one area, we lack in other areas, like our health can suffer if we focus too much on our work goals and vice versa. To reduce the stress with this goal-setting process, Dr. Huberman tells us that when we're going after our goals, there are only four parts or circuits of the brain involved, and understanding how these four areas work together can help us to find ways to move towards our goals more intentionally with increased focus and with brain science involved. To reduce the stress with the goal-setting process, Dr. Huberman tells us that when we're going after our goals, there are only four parts or circuits of the brain involved, and understanding how these four areas work together can help us to find ways to move towards our goals more intentionally with increased focus and with brain science involved. No matter what the goal is, an executive building a multi-million dollar company or a teacher creating their lesson plans, There are only four common circuits involved in the goal-seeking areas of the brain. There's the amygdala that's often associated with fear, anxiety, or avoidance of pain. There's the initiating action or preventing action, basal ganglia, which is a circuit involving the initiation or prevention of action, the go or no-go circuit. Then there's the executive functions like thinking and planning, whether it's now or in the future circuits, and that's in the lateral prefrontal cortex. And finally, there's the orbital frontal cortex, which meshes emotionality to our current state, where we sit now without our goals versus how it will feel when we actually achieve our goals. So how do we assess the value of the goal and know what action to take? What happens in these circuits depends on what value is placed on a goal, and given the value of the goal, we decide which action to take or not take, and the neurotransmitter dopamine will be used in our brain depending on the value of the goal that seems to be important. Which brings us back to why a book like Think and Grow Rich could help us in the first place. 
If you think about the four goal-seeking areas of the brain and how they're activated during the goal-setting achieving process, it makes sense to me that having a solid plan to stay on track would keep these four areas of the brain working for me instead of against me. The chapter on choosing faith over fear will prevent my amygdala from shutting down my brain when obstacles come my way because I've got a plan to move past them. Then I can imagine the basal ganglia saying, go Andrea, keep going and cheering me on past whatever obstacles come my way, like procrastination. And then the persistence chapter will remind me why I've got to keep going, use my executive functions as I think, plan, and add the final goal setting part of my brain to add emotion to how incredible it's going to feel when I achieve that goal that I've worked so hard for, or the pain and frustration I might feel if I miss the goal. This book was designed to support the four goal-seeking areas of the brain. No wonder it works so well. What I thought was fascinating with the research that Dr. Huberman mentioned is that there are ways that we can further improve our focus and cognitive attention and our ability to stay focused on what we want. And that's by focusing on an external point. And the minute we focus on a point outside of our body, it requires effort and something happens at the brain level that prepares us for the action we're about to take. Remember Pritchett said we can't achieve exponential gains in our success from a defensive position. We must be primed and ready for action. Then we use our visual focus to achieve our goals quicker and with less perceived effort. Dr. Huberman's focusing activity will help us to be prepared mentally for the action we must take by leaning into the goal when we do this. He gave an example of a study where one group looked at the goal line in a goal-achieving exercise that they had to move to, narrowing their attention to what they wanted. They had to move themselves to the goal line wearing 15-pound weights, while the other group did not look at the goal line or their final destination. The group that used their focus attention towards the goal they wanted, they could see exactly where they were going with no doubts at all, were more primed for that goal physiologically. He explained on a deeper level what happens to the brain and body when we focus on the goal ahead of time, but the results showed the group that looked at the goal line were able to move towards the goal line with less perceived effort, 17% less effort, and quicker, 23% faster than the other group that did not look at the goal line. So how do we put this into action? How does Dr. Huberman's research tie into part two of our book study? He said just by changing where a person looks, they change their perceived effort and their ability to achieve their goals more quickly. Do you have your eye on your goal? Are you clear about your end point or where you're going? There really is a science behind setting and achieving our goals. As we're working through part two of the series, where we look at our goal that's not a wish, it's not a hope, but a burning desire, remember that desire that Edison saw in Barnes's eyes? Barnes was clear about what he wanted. He had his eyes on the end goal, and Edison saw it just as clearly as Barnes did. That energy radiated from Barnes, and Edison picked it up. He didn't let it waver with doubts, fears, or worries, and he never took his eye off his goal. I put an image in the show notes of a roadmap I created in the Level Up program to help us to break down our goals into quarters. 
It helps to bring clarity to where you are now with a vision of where you're going and a place for your action steps that you can take along the way, breaking your goals into smaller chunks. You might have a process for breaking down your goals that you prefer, but I wanted to share this strategy with you in the show notes just as an example to map out your year with a clear path, keeping in mind that the research shows this clarity or having your eye on the end goal is so vitally important. Our brain will pick up on the value we place on our goal, our clarity and definiteness of purpose, and provide you with the dopamine needed to take the action necessary for the attainment of that goal. That's mind-blowing to me to think about why the principle of desire, knowing clearly where we're going, pushes us towards what we want. It's happening on a biological and physiological level. Thanks to Dr. Huberman's podcast, I was able to make this connection and many more on a deeper level. Remember, when we're clear about what we want and why we want it, this will drive our behavior and our brain will produce the neurotransmitter dopamine to push us towards action or whatever it is we want. When we can keep our eye clearly on the end goal, we'll get there with less perceived effort and quicker than if we didn't have this clear vision. This reminded me that Brendan Burchard chose clarity as one of the habits in his book, High Performance Habits, as one of the habits that moves the needle for most of the habits of high achievers, and now I can see why. Moving into part three, we examined the importance of putting these goals on autopilot with what Hill calls auto-suggestion, and then further honing our craft by studying, learning, and developing specialized knowledge that will separate you from others, making you truly unique with your talent that you'll continue to perfect in your lifetime while using your imagination to keep building and perfecting whatever it is you want to create in your life. What we're doing here is creating new behaviors that will become automatic and work for us and make our pursuit towards our goals much easier with time. So what is the neuroscience of habit building? We mentioned at the start of this episode that we've covered an introduction to how our brain forms and breaks habits on an earlier episode, number 35, way back to January of 2020, that's a good episode to review in addition to what I'll share with you here. Part three is all about putting our goals on autopilot, and Hill suggests reading and writing our goals every day, twice a day. What he's doing is helping us to prime our brain to become crystal clear with our vision that after a certain amount of time of repeating our goals, they begin to become automatic in our brain. They no longer feel like pipe dreams, but we become familiar with them. And this is not far off from the habit-building literature that you'll find when you research how to build new habits with the hundreds of books, research, and articles on the subject online. What I liked about Dr. Huberman's work is that he explains there are certain habits that will give us more limbic friction or are difficult to do. This is going to be different for everyone. For me, getting up and exercising every day is easy to do and requires very little limbic friction because it's become a habit for me over the years. But to sit at my desk and read through neuroscience articles on PubMed is excruciatingly difficult. And when we have something we find difficult to do, we can end up procrastinating and not do it at all. Dr. Huberman makes this daunting task simple and easier to tackle by suggesting we divide up our days into phases. 
And he says phase one would be like the early morning or the first zero to eight hours after waking up where you can overcome this limbic friction and do the things that are most difficult for you if you tackle them in this early window of the day to help you push past something that's difficult, which eventually will form the habit. This was the main idea of Brian Tracy's popular book, Eat That Frog, 21 Great Ways to Stop Procrastinating and Get More Done in Less Time. It's all about tackling those difficult tasks first. So how do we put this into action? I've always liked the idea of picking one habit that you'll form or break every 90 days. And if you can check off each day that you do the new habit, if it's like exercise or reading articles on PubMed or trading coffee for hot lemon water, whatever it is, you pick one habit and you focus on that for 90 days. At the end of the 90 days, you'll have formed a new habit and you'll have a heightened level of self-awareness as you go through this process. I highly suggest this activity, but will say that if you're looking to eliminate a habit that you don't want anymore and you can't do it, then a good episode to revisit is Dr. Anna Lemke from episode 162, who explains how certain habits can become addictive and how to break them. You can use the chart in the show notes to pick one habit and stick with it or break a habit this way over a 90-day period. I listened to another incredible podcast with Kristen Holmes from Whoop.com, who we had on episode 134 on measuring sleep, recovery, and strain. And she was speaking with Dr. Hazel Wallace on nutrition and habit formation, and they discussed some similar habit-forming breaking strategies. I love the example that Kristen used when talking about ways to break habits she didn't like, like looking at your phone while driving, and she mentioned that thinking of the negative consequences of the action can help you to break these habits. Dr. Huberman actually mentioned this strategy on his Science Behind Setting and Achieving Goals podcast with the idea of visualizing failure as being an effective goal-achieving strategy instead of the usual visualizing success strategy. He makes the distinction that predicting failure is much different than visualizing failure. Predicting failure or what happens if you don't achieve what you're going for can help you lean in towards your goal. When you're on track, you can reward yourself along the way and withhold rewards when you veer off track to keep your dopamine reward centers active. The best reward is always the unexpected reward that you can also use to further motivate someone and amplify their system. So take a look at the image in the show notes and pick one habit that you'll form or break over the next 90 days and see if you can use Dr. Huberman's strategy of tackling the new habit in phase one of your day to make it easier on your brain as you attempt to create the new habit. In part four of the series, we dove deep into why organized planning, decision-making, and persistence are important and timeless leadership characteristics with strategies to help us to all improve our persistent muscles. There is a neuroscience of focus. There's a way to focus in on our habits using our persistence to turn them into stronger habits that stick and use up less limbic friction or how difficult a habit is to carry out when we think about the habits we do every day, like brushing our teeth, that are automatic and we can easily perform them at any time. They're strong habits. So how do we put this into action and increase the likelihood that we'll build strong habits that stick? 
A study identifies neurons that fire at the beginning and end of a behavior become a habit. Remember the four parts of the brain involved in goal seeking. For this strategy, we're involving the basal ganglia, the action, execution, or suppression, or the do or don't do circuits of the brain. For something Dr. Huberman shared is called task bracketing, and happens at any time we're learning a new habit or skill, or trying to break a new habit or skill. Most of us will find some things easy to do and others more difficult, depending on whether they're habits or not. It matters what we're doing before and after the skill to bracket it, because parts of the brain in the basal ganglia that determine whether we're taking the action or not will become more active before and after a particular habit. So it brackets the habit and makes it stronger. I do remember hearing this in a past episode with Dr. Rady, the author of Spark: The New Science of Exercise in the Brain, on episode 116, where he mentioned that any time exercise is done before a new habit you're trying to form, it will make that habit stick. It made sense to me that exercise could be used to frame the habit, or think of this imaginary bracket around the habit. Adding more focus to it, with our brain primed with neurotransmitters, strengthening what we're doing, so it can be performed at any given time. If we have habits that are bracketed with physical exercise or any other strategy you can think of to prime your brain to what you're about to do, like viewing sunlight or cold exposure, caffeine, intermittent fasting, or ways to increase norepinephrine and dopamine, this will help you to engage in activities with high limbic friction or the activities that you find difficult to do. So even if we get a terrible sleep or aren't operating optimally, we'll still move forward and perform what we set out to do. Since we've placed a higher value on this habit that we've bracketed, just like habits we don't think is necessary, we could skip. This creates a neural imprint on our brain of the value of whatever habit it is we want to maintain. Preparing our brain for this habit that we want to create by initiating it when our brain and body are in the right state, like early in the first eight hours of the day when we're less tired, is another way to bracket the habit we want to stick with less limbic friction. Another way to strengthen a habit is to think of the neural pathway that's created each time we do the thing we want, since neurons that fire together wire together, and neuroscience and the literature and psychology support that doing what you want to accomplish once or twice in your mind before can help you to create the neural circuit before you even begin the habit creation process. Are you bracketing your high limbic friction habits? Here's how I do this. In order to read, research, and write complex ideas involving neuroscience, I start my day around 4 a.m. with coffee. I use exercise and intermittent fasting that I break after my morning hikes, and this way, my brain is primed to sit at my desk and create content that I sometimes find difficult to learn, understand, and explain. After my interview with Dr. Rady, I was aware of the fact I knew I needed certain things for me to focus on this work that I find difficult to do, but I had no idea that it was a brain strategy called bracketing until I learned that from Dr. Andrew Huberman. Moving on to part five of our series, we looked at the incredible power of the mastermind when two or more minds come together, creating what Hill called a third invisible, intangible force that may be likened to a third mind. 
Next, we took the mystery out of sex transmutation, showing that we can use this energy, the most powerful of human desires, to develop keenness of imagination, courage, willpower, persistence, and a creative ability that can become a motivating force to propel any profession to new heights. Finally, we reviewed the importance of linking all parts of our mind together and reminding us about the power of auto-suggestion and reading and writing our goals out twice a day. This part of the book showed me how important it is to bring our understanding of the brain and mind together. On one of our early episodes from October of 2019, we focused on the difference between the mind and the brain so we can see how energy and information comes into our body and how we can use this information. There is an incredible power that is formed when we can tap into our creative mind, whether it's through a mastermind team or transmuting our energy, we all have the ability to take our results to a new level with this concept. So moving on to the final chapters of Think and Grow Rich, our review and conclusion. In chapter 14, Hill talks about the importance of our sixth sense or developing our intuition that will open to you at all times the door to the temple of wisdom. Hill says the ability to use this power comes slowly through application of the other principles outlined in this book. Seldom does any individual come into workable knowledge of the sixth sense or intuition before the age of 40. More often, the knowledge is not available until one is well past 50. I first became interested in this topic before reading this book, and there are many useful books I found that helped to further guide me to develop this skill, like Shatke Gawain's Developing Intuition that has a section for using intuition in the workplace. When you become good at listening to what feels right versus what feels wrong and how science ties into this as we actually feel it throughout our entire body with a concept called interoception, then we'll become quicker and more efficient at making decisions and we'll never need to ask someone else, what do you think about this? Because you'll know with certainty what the answer is. This skill does require practice. The final principle is chapter 15 and how to outwit the six ghosts of fear that Hill says is mandatory or else none of the other principles in the book will work. He says before you can put any portion of this philosophy into successful use, your mind must be prepared to receive it. The preparation is not difficult. It begins with study, analysis, and understanding of the three enemies you need to clear out. They are indecision, doubt, and fear. Before we can even get to the six ghosts of fear, we must eliminate all doubts and fears that make us indecisive. Do you see how all chapters of the book work together like the colors of the rainbow? Are you decisive or indecisive? If you've learned to trust your intuition, you'll be decisive and not attached to what other people think, or as Hill said, not easily influenced by the opinion of others. Once you've used your sixth sense to move past these three enemies, There are six basic fears or ghosts of fear that we must outwit. There's the fear of poverty, fear of criticism, fear of ill health, fear of loss of love of someone, fear of old age, and fear of death. Fears are nothing more than states of mind, and all of these six fears should be examined and eliminated for you to reach your highest potential. As we come to a close in the final 15 principles in the book, Think and Grow Rich, we're brought back to remember how important our thoughts are in chapter one 
and that we must build the life we want with a clear mental image of our goals. We need to be careful of who we surround ourselves with and stay clear of negative thinking, complaining, or worrying. And once we followed all the steps Hill suggests in each of the 15 chapters and eliminate all doubts and fears, we'll move steadily in the direction of our goals and think for ourselves. So to bring this final episode into a close, I want to review each part with some thoughts on the action that we should take for this book study. I had no idea these episodes would keep me busy for the entire month of January, but I did learn that instead of relying on someone else to walk me through the book, teaching it on the podcast has helped me to understand these principles on a much deeper level than any other year when I've done the study with someone else leading it. In part one, we talked about stretching our brain past what's familiar or comfortable and think in a wildly different way than we previously have been. The amount of concentration we require to learn something new depends on the complexity of the material, and we must think of learning from a new angle, from within our skull, right down to our neurons and axons in the brain, and how they are forming neural circuits, depending on the effort we're putting in to form the new habit, and create a new circuit that with repetition will eventually become easier. What will you do differently this year? How will you break through to new levels and achieve something you've never done before? In part two, we looked at being crystal clear with our goal, knowing where we are now, where we want to go, and the action steps we'll take, and how focusing on our end point of our goal will help us to get there with less perceived effort and time. I gave you a roadmap to use to map out your year and break it up into quarters so that at any given point of time, if you're asked where you are in the process, you'll be unwavering with your response. Is your year clearly mapped out from where you are now to where you're going? In part three, we looked at how auto-suggestion puts our goals on autopilot and some ways to break habits that don't serve us and how to form new ones. What strategy will you use this year to break or form new habits? I put the 100 days to habit worksheet in the show notes that you can use for this strategy. In part four, we talked about the neuroscience of focus and how to add task bracketing to make difficult, high friction limbic tasks easier to accomplish while setting the brain on a path to creating a new habit with whatever it is you find difficult. What are your high friction limbic tasks? How do you task bracket them to make them less difficult? In part five, we put all the parts of the brain together and it leads us into the final chapters of the book that I admit that I hadn't read until doing this book study. Learning how our brain works is something we can do with new learning, new study, applying new research, and honing our skills and craft along the way. This is all a process that takes time. So to close out this episode, I'll end with a quote that I saw the other night on one of Bob Proctor's social media accounts. I know it wasn't him posting this, but his team, as he never had time for that sort of thing. But whoever picked this quote got it right. It said, what story do you want to tell? What scenes do you want to shoot? How do you want the movie to end? Be the director of your life. Whatever it is you're going after, you'll do it when you believe it. Napoleon Hill had an unwavering belief in his vision when Andrew Carnegie, one of the richest men in American history, challenged him to write a book, 
on the laws of achievement, and Hill told him, Andrew Carnegie, I'm not only going to equal your achievements in life, but I'm going to challenge you at the post and pass you at the grandstand. I'm sure that Carnegie saw the belief in Hill's eyes. Do you have an unwavering belief in whatever it is you want to achieve? I would seriously put some thought into this. It's the last chapter of the book I wrote, inspired by my work with Bob Proctor, The Secret for Teens Revealed, where I took the principles I learned while working with Proctor in the seminar industry and created an action plan for teens to use. The last chapter in the book is what difference will you make in your lifetime? We should all know the legacy we want to create and the difference we're going to make in our lifetime. It's not what we get in our lifetime, it's who we become, and it's up to us to make this happen. The 15 principles of this book that we've studied are a solid roadmap to help guide us there. I think we can now all agree how these principles are backed by science and why they are effective. With that, I complete our book study of this powerful book, Think and Grow Rich, that has been studied by some of the wisest people in the world. And if you've made it this far, you can add yourself to this list as well. I would love to hear any feedback on this episode and what you think. Did this study help you to refine your year? Now that we've completed the study, what action steps will you take? Do you feel the sense of urgency that I tried to convey that this must be the year we all do things differently to attain new results and that as each year comes to a close, we revisit these 15 principles to further refine our plans? If this was the last year of your life, what would you do to make an imprint on the world with your talents and abilities? I'll see you next week as we move into some interviews with a returning guest, Dr. David Souza, and his new edition of How the Brain Learns, as well as a fascinating story of Erica First, who founded Moodily.com and turned to neuroscience after she experienced work burnout after 10 years of working for Ray-Ban in global advertising and media. We continue our season in pursuit of our goals with health and well-being at the core of our message. See you next week. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 